Merry Christmas? Is it too early? I'm not a monster. After Thanksgiving, we can indeed say that. So, I hope you often counsel your own soul. That is, in fact, what that song tells us we should do. Be still, my soul, in the same way that David constantly speaks to his own self, it seems, in the Psalms. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. I hope you often counsel your soul. And and this passage, in fact, is one of the ways that we can be effective in counseling our own soul. You will open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 as we continue our study there. First Peter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray in this moment as uh, for just a tiny slice of time out of a regular week, we come together as a body of Christ to submit ourselves to the authority of God's word. I pray that we would understand that it should be consecrated in our hearts. That what we're doing merits an act of the will to set aside distractions and to make this time holy unto you as an offering of praise, even as we sit and listen and hear. And as we, by your Spirit, open our hearts to understand wonderful things in your law. I pray for each person here that individually and also as a group, that we would be uh, the kind of people who would yield to the work of your Spirit. I pray that we would be found to be the good soil, wherein the implanted word can be received and bear fruit. And I pray that you would produce joy in us. I pray that as we consider how you work, through even the trials, that we would leave rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen. Peter begins these two verses with a statement, in this you rejoice. And there is some warrant at the outset to discuss what is rejoicing. In what sense should we take this statement? It could be translated something like greatly rejoice. And one of the more popular Bible translations renders it that way. In this you greatly rejoice. A literal rendering of the word with with its roots means something like this. Much, Much rejoicing or much jumping. Great leaping or leaping with joy. That's the word there. 
There's two striking examples of this word being used in the New Testament, one being the conversion of the Philippian jailer. So after he is converted, he's about to kill himself, and Paul says, don't do that, we're all here, and he rejoices with his family afterwards that he had believed. So he has a deep happiness of, of such a traumatic and joyful night as he had with the situation with Paul and Silas there. And then the other example, of course, is when Mary is praying her magnificent. She says, my spirit rejoices in the Lord. So the idea is is that her soul is, as it were, leaping for happiness in view of what God has done. And it's interesting if you compare John's response to the Messiah coming close in the womb of Mary. He leaps, and then Mary says, my spirit leaps with joy. That's that's the image of this word. So at the beginning of verse 6, we need to understand, in this you rejoice, it's not... uh, a a soft, peddling idea of happiness, that you can have maybe an inner resolve of the heart like a stoic, that yes, this is the good way. It is is a very vibrant word of joy, maybe something that we can think of around Christmas time with a song like Joy to the World, how you ought to feel when you're singing that song. That is the flavor of this word. Leaping for happiness. And, And it's interesting, this is actually in the middle voice. It's not passive. Passive would be something like this. This causes you to rejoice. Or this makes you joyful. Um, Some of you might be sitting around waiting for God to create joy in your heart. You might be like the person in Psalm 4. Who will show us some good? And it's interesting, this, this verb here is not active either. An active Verb would be something like this. You make yourself rejoice, or you cause joy in your own heart. Something like that in a technical translation. Um, And, you know, some of the ways that we try to help hurting people, people who are sad, is, is to just tell them essentially to buck up. And, you know, theologically when we say that, we're saying something like make yourself happy. Do what needs to happen in your heart to be happy. And to be fair, the Bible speaks of joy or happiness or rejoicing in both senses. On the one hand, it is our duty to rejoice. We're commanded to rejoice in the Lord. So that's the active sense. But on the other hand, we can't rejoice unless God does a work in us because joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. But if I know anything about sorrow and sadness... When your joy is absent or you're on the rocks, it does not help much to be told to just be happy. Or you're out of luck, wait around for God to give you joy. I think both of those counsels miss the mark. This is the middle voice, and I'm sorry for the grammar lesson this early in the morning after you've eaten so much turkey and tryptophan. But understand that he is simply saying, you rejoice. You just do. It it, it kind of leaves it ambiguous as to why it is the case, and it puts the emphasis on the ground of our rejoicing. When we are down and there is no joy, and we can't seem to get ourselves out of it, we must not try to manufacture joy. It doesn't work. And, on the other hand, we cannot simply wait around for God to give us joy. That doesn't help Either. Rather, we must focus on what the foundation of our joy has to be. And so, what is the ground of our rejoicing? 
What is the ground of our joy? He says, in this you rejoice. We can't muster it up on our own. At the same time, we're not supposed to just wait around for God to produce it. What are we to do? That's not a fake question. This is at the very bottom of daily Christian experience. And I think, honestly, it has to be answered every day. On what ground will you be rejoicing, believer? Do you care if you rejoice or not? I mean, it's a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. How are you going to do that? The answer in this text, I think, is this. We must focus on the this. That's an oddly worded sentence on purpose. The this in this text is verses 3 through 5 specifically. So I want to read that again. We covered this last week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. We covered this last week, and I'm not going to spend time necessarily reviewing all of those pieces of data. But in summary, the ground of our rejoicing is the objective realities of what God has done for us. The ground of our rejoicing is the objective reality of what God has done for us. In this, when Peter says that, indicates that instead of focusing on your lack of joy that you may have in your hearts, or trying to muster it up, or waiting for it, we should rather fix our gaze on the Lord Himself and what He has done. In short, the pursuit of joy is more about seeing and grabbing hold of truth and reality than it is about feeling. Frankly, this is why you were made. If it is true, or since it is true, that you were made in the image of God, you were made to rejoice in Him. You were not made to be an expert at manufacturing joy. That is God who does that. And it is, He has created you in such a way that by beholding the Lord, you will, in fact, receive If you look at, if you gaze at, if you fix your attention on what He has done, it will, sometimes gradually and sometimes slower than you may want, produce joy in your heart. There is also a surety of rejoicing. The flavor of this statement, worded this way in verse 6, is almost so strong as to say, you do actually rejoice in these things. It is happening. How can Peter say this? He does not say, and these are a lot of these people that are going to read this letter, uh, he doesn't know personally. He may have not even visited these churches before he wrote to them. He just knows that there are a lot of Christians who have been forced to go there through persecution or for whatever reason. You do actually rejoice, he says. He doesn't say, in this you can rejoice, or in this you are able to rejoice, leaving it up to the person to decide for themselves if they see evidences in their heart or or not for rejoicing. 
I don't think what he's saying here, though, is that if you're a Christian, you will invariably be leaping for joy and gladness. Right? If that's your Christian experience from start to finish, I want to talk to you afterwards. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he is saying is that if the realities of verses 3 through 5, if they have actually happened to us, and when we consider them, when we set our gaze on them, when we take hold of those realities and hold them close to our hearts, then joy will eventually, in some way, result. Brothers and sisters, it is not an insufficiency in the gospel that, or the work of God in your heart to produce joy. I think the problem is that we are not nearly familiar enough with what God has done. And we are not willing to spend enough time seeing and taking hold of those objective realities of what He has done for us in Christ. The problem, I think, is that we are far more interested in things that are simply not that interesting in comparison to what He tells us in verses 3 through 5. And that verses 3 through 5 would just be uh, headings of so many things that God has done. What has the focus of your heart? You are made to feel and respond from the bottom of your soul in correspondence with what you are fixing your gaze on. That's how human worship works. We're to keep Him and what He's done as the apple of our eye, as it were. So why should we talk this much about joy in a sermon with a title like Trials, faith, and the return of Christ. Because I'm focusing on joy in this way. One, because the text begins with joy. But unless you are armed with joy, you will not be able to receive the theology of suffering in these verses. You must be armed with joy. The joy that can only come from God in order for any of this to make sense. That joy is possible. It is yours. So before you hear all of this teaching about the purpose of trials and what God is doing through it and how it is necessary and all that, you need to know that joy, rejoicing, great leaping for joy even, is available to you insofar as you set your gaze on what God has done. And then he says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. I want you to note first the contrast of trials. The contrast of trials. He says, though. He does not say and or also. He says, though, and it has the flavor of yet. So in this you rejoice greatly. On the other hand, or yet in the same breath, or yet maybe in the same day or moment, you've been grieved by various trials. And it introduces or alludes to at least a complexity or tension in the Christian experience. There is contrast in the mere existence of trials. Don't get it wrong on this point. Suffering and trials in one sense is not how it's supposed to be. And even in the most ultimate sense, it is not how it will always be. We'll get to that in a bit. 
The encouragement here, though, I think, is that the Bible acknowledges this tension. Even as we read in 2 Corinthians 6, it, it almost sounds like Paul has, has two personalities. That On the one hand, he's suffering all these things, and on the other hand, he's abounding in all these other ways. There's, there's contrast, there's complexity in the Christian life. And I think misunderstanding this tension that you can be rejoicing and grieving has led many believers to reject out of hand the category of lament at all. Generally, we don't even want to sing songs that are in a minor key because they sound sad. Right? But this is, a part, this is half, you could even say, of the Christian experience, grieved by various trials. And, and the idea is that to, to just dismiss that out of hand and our church services are all happy and all encouragement, we're essentially saying we're, we're ignoring that half of Christian experience. You can't sterilize your walk with the Lord enough to where it is nothing but joy. You can be rejoicing always, but... On the other hand, there will be grief. In our joy, it is the Lord's plan. This is amazing. In our joy, it is the Lord's plan that we should be grieved. That doesn't draw a crowd. That doesn't build a huge congregation. It is God's plan, even in your joy, to grieve you. And I think the world's answer, for the most part, is to reject out of hand the category of hope and joy in the first place. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's have fun while we can, while life lasts. There's no hope in that. There's no end of all of this. Hope for it being over and things being better. Let's just make it as good as we can while we can. So... Be encouraged. I think the encouragement is this, that if you feel that things are off at some level in your heart, even as a believer, if you feel like you're a walking contradiction, that is exactly what you ought to expect if things are as the Bible says they are. It's confirming that there is a contrast of trials. But this text also speaks to the duration of trials, the duration of trials. He says, now for a little while. Here, I think Peter may be referring, at least in some ways, to the historical situation of his readers. Uh, It's likely that some of them were expelled from Rome due to the emperor not really liking Christians and were sent to colonies in Asia Minor. That could be the case. But I think because of the end of verse 7, he talks about the, re- the, the revealing of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think he's talking about the whole of the Christian life. This little while stands for your life in this body. I think that's what he's saying. The Bible is not shy about comparing your entire life to something that is very short and very fleeting. Here are a few examples. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James 4.14. And then from Psalm 144.4, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And then Psalm 102, verse 3. For my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. And just a few verses below in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24, he says, All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. 
I was not shy about comparing all of your life, no matter how many years the Lord may give you, to a vapor and it's gone. An emptiness of emptiness in the words of Ecclesiastes. But does this not sound insensitive, right? This is, this is what the structure of the logic of this passage, that we are, for a little time we are being grieved by these trials. So Peter is saying, however long you're being grieved by these trials are, no matter the intensity of your grieving and the suffering that the Lord has providentially ordained in your life, it's for a little while. But does that not sound insensitive and lacking in compassion? What if one of Job's friends had said to him, well, Job, you know, I'm really sorry. Don't worry. This is all for a short time. It'll be over soon. That would maybe be better than some of the advice and counsel they gave, but it still wouldn't help much. So I don't think this is something that that we're meant to lob at others who are down in the dumps or depressed or discouraged or being grieved. Hey, just don't worry. It's not going to last very long. 50, 60 more years, who cares in comparison to eternity, right? It's not helpful. But it is an encouragement to those who trust in the promises of God because God is faithful. This phase of trials and suffering has to end at some point. Notice the difference in these two statements. It's one thing to say, this will all be over soon. And it is another thing entirely to say, the Lord will very soon keep all his promises to me. That's different. The flavor is different entirely. So, a little while stands for your whole life. That is the duration of the trials. But we also see the necessity of trials. The necessity of trials. The hard truth of this passage is that these trials, whatever they are, are necessary And don't be confused by the use of the conditional word if in the ESV in that sentence. If necessary, he's not saying that there are some cases where trials aren't necessary. As one commentator put it, this carries the flavor of it must be. Okay, That's the way the grammar works in the original. And I'm not going to try to defend the truth right now that trials are necessary in the life of the believer. um, Just for the sake of time, but... if you just look around the world and look at what, go, what is going on, and if you're familiar at all with the lives of people, you know that, at least in an inductive perspective, it does seem necessary. There is no one who is spared. Life is fragile, and no one is immune. No matter how well we can try to insulate ourselves from trials and troubles, they will invariably come. Even if one day you are able to, through your power and wealth, dare to compare yourself to the glory of Solomon, you will find that even there in that rarefied air of privilege and blessing that you can't escape it. Grievous trials are still our portion while we are under the sun. Now, understand, while suffering for the believer is the only way. It is an odd and counterintuitive way. Why would it be the case that those in whom the Lord is working such magnificent joy yet would invariably be grieved? Why would the Lord ordain that the very ones He desires to bless most 
seem to be those who quite often endure the hardest trials. Why should we, the chosen and beloved ones of God, be treated with such opposition and rejection and exile? Now, it's not helpful, again, to just say, well, that's what happened to Jesus, and just move on. Even though that's true, and that is, the, in some sense, a, a very foundational reason that we suffer is because he suffered. But it's not helpful to just say that as a final answer because you can still ask the question, well, why did Jesus have to suffer? Why was it God's plan for Jesus himself to learn obedience through what he suffered? As the author of Hebrews says. God is free to do whatever he wants with creation. Why did he choose this way? Sorrow and suffering and trial and being grieved. Even for his own son. Do you realize how blank a slate creation was and is for him to do whatever he wants? Understand that this is the path that the Lord, the Almighty, Yahweh himself, chose for you and his son Jesus. It's not that he's just making something good out of a bad situation, right? That's how we can try to explain away our suffering sometimes. Like, well, he'll cause it all to work to his glory. He is working through it and ordaining it for your good from start to finish. That's hard to hear. It is both necessary and it is his way to do this. We encounter crazy statements in the Bible about the necessity of suffering and the necessity of trials. And we don't have time to visit them all. I'll just give you one. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, Paul says that we are destined for affliction. We're not destined for wrath, but we're destined for affliction as the Lord uses that affliction to produce in us what he wants, as we're going to see in a bit. It is necessary. The encouragement here, I think, is this. Since you can't escape it, no matter what your worldview is, you can't escape suffering. Even if you have all wealth and power like Solomon, you can't escape affliction. Since that's the case, the encouragement is that it's not frivolous. It's not just spinning out of control and whatever's happening is happening and God's trying to make something good out of a bad situation. He's taking the ingredients and like chopped that show on TV. He's just taking all these weird ingredients and trying to make something good out of it. That's not what he's doing. And that's why I don't like the answer that people sometimes say of we live in a fallen world. That word fallen is never used to describe what took place in Genesis 3. It is rebellion and sin and curse. What we're dealing with, brothers and sisters, is sin, judgment, and the whole universe being in the labor pains of bringing forth the children of God. That's what's happening It's not just, well, life is hard sometimes. It's purposeful. If trials are unavoidable in this life, is it not better to know that it is purposeful and at the hand of a loving God rather than some people just get a bad hand dealt to them? You have a choice how you view it. And I would encourage you to see his loving hand behind it all. Why we chose many of the songs we sing. We also see the grief of trials. We've looked at the duration, the contrast, and the necessity. Now we look at the grief of trials. Regardless of what kind of trials the sufferings are, 
regardless of how we're being grieved, the thing that is grammatically necessary in this text, as, as far as the, this verse is concerned, is grief. Because Look at it. I, w- I really want you to see this. It's not that the trials in some vague, per se, sense are necessary. What is necessary is that we be grieved. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The trials aren't the point, necessarily. It is the effect that they are having on us, and that is grief. Again, this is an offensive thing to say, but it is necessary that you be grieved, even in your great rejoicing. Crazy contrast, right? On the one hand, we're leaping for joy, and on the other hand, we are grieved. This word uh, is is a burdensome word. You know, sometimes it can be a very dramatic thing if someone asks you, how are you doing? You say, well, you know, it's it's been a this or that, or I've dealt with this, or you can just be uh, kind of overly spiritual and say, I'm just always blessed, you know, or something like that. Try this answer on for size. How are you doing? I'm leaping greatly for joy and deeply grieved by trials. That is essentially what Peter is saying that these believers are. Obviously in view of their historical situation, but the life of the believer is in general leaping for joy and grieved with trial. Understand that the grief is part of the point, if not the main point. Here's, here's the danger I'm trying to under, get you to understand and help us avoid. Don't respond to your own trials or the suffering or the trials of other people too quickly and try to get yourself past the point of grief. Sometimes we're willing to endure suffering as long as we don't have to grieve very much. We can just grin and bear it like a stoic and, and just... Go along with our life, but we're not willing to allow it to cause us grief. The word can be translated as sorrow, grief, or heaviness. And if you've been in a difficult trial, you know what this means. There is a heaviness of heart that is difficult to put into words. And sometimes we're not even sure why we feel it. Why we sense it. Time can help heal hurts, but the grief of trials, the grief that trials cause, does not always play by the rules. And there can be lingering grief for a long time. And sometimes it's disproportionate with the trials. And just grief becomes our experience. And this is part of normal Christian experience. It is necessary that you be grieved. Even for Jesus a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It was part of God's plan for your Messiah that his life be characterized by sorrow and grief. Not just trials. He didn't just endure hard things and his spirit or soul was up here just not getting down in the muck of it all and not being affected by it, but to experience grief. God put him to grief, it says. And this is also the case for all of us. Don't brush away other people's suffering because it's not that hard. 
The trial and the grief do not always function in an orderly fashion. You can have some suffering over here that may seem small to someone else, but because of how it came into your life, the timing, and the way it relates to everything else, it can cause you more grief than other people can understand. And that is true of everyone sitting in this room. So show compassion. You can't just brush their grief aside. Why would the Lord providentially ordain to put us to grief in this way? The answer is, of course, in verse 7. But before we get to that, we have one more thing to consider about these trials. The variety of trials. The variety of trials. He says, by various trials. And this text, this, this section here, is actually almost a perfect analog for James 1, verse 2. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And I want to be very careful here and guard against what I think are two errors when it comes to the various kinds of trials that we're supposed to view this way. The first danger is to treat all trials and suffering the same and have only one way of responding to them, namely to count it all as joy. You can add an and Sorry for these complicated sentences. You can add an and to your response of counting it all joy. Here are some examples. There are sorrows and trials that you must count as joy because of, God, because of what God is doing and what He will do through Him, as we'll see in verse 7, and where you must or could at the same time be working to improve your situation, like with a better job or a better living situation. There are sorrows and trials that you must count as joy And you can engage with your spouse and your children in a better way to create a more peaceful and God-honoring home. There are sorrows and trials that you must count as joy and where you should call the police. There are sorrows and trials that you must count as joy and at the same time go see a doctor. There are sorrows and trials that you must count as joy and pray like Jesus, even sweating drops of blood in order to be delivered from it. All of those are consistent, but those don't mean that you can't or shouldn't or don't count it as joy, even in the midst of the grief. The Bible Bible never tells us to just sit in our trials and suffering and do nothing about it. And it certainly never encourages us to do nothing about the suffering of other people. That's what karma teaches. Just embrace it. Deal with it. It'll it'll pay off in the next cycle of reincarnation. Just don't change anything or you might mess up someone else's story arc to come into a better form in the next life. Christianity is not that. Do what you can to do good to everyone. Help other people. Bear one another's burdens. An example of this in the New Testament, of course, is when Paul says to people who are in slavery, he says, if you can get yourself out of slavery, certainly do that. But while you're a slave, serve the Lord faithfully. Right? That, that's the spirit here I'm trying to give to you. And more importantly, even than that, bear one another's burdens. The other danger, so that's the first danger. Don't just flatten the analogy and say, well, all I can do in response to my sufferings and trials is try to count it as joy or just remember what God is doing from it and in it and and do nothing else about it. That's not the only response consistent with Scripture. The other danger, I think, the other side of the same coin, is that we can forget to count it all as joy. There are certain trials, there are certain types of suffering that come into our life that maybe it varies from person to person, but where we are not inclined to count them as joy. I think this is especially the case when someone sins against us. 
or when it's due to our own sin that we've gotten ourselves into a mess, or when it's something just completely out of our hands, it's difficult in those cases to count them as joy. The grief, particularly. Not be happy that the sin occurred against you or by you, but be glad in the grief that God is using through those trials for what He's going to produce in you, as we'll see in verse 7. I think this is encouragement and a corrective for both arrows. It it is that no matter the source or type of your trial we encounter, and no matter what we may be well within our rights and the encouragements of Scriptures to fix, we must rest in the knowledge that the grief, the sorrow, the heaviness of heart is purposeful. So what is the purpose? What is the glorious end, the goal What could justify God using grief from various kinds of trials, even in His own Son? Verse 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we see the proof and cause of genuine faith. He says, the tested genuineness of your faith. And there are two sense of testing in the Bible. You should know this if you've been around the Scriptures and church for a while. Maybe this is new to you, but there are two senses of testing in the Bible, and both are very important. The first example is, uh, I'll give you an analogy. Let's say you're out in your yard, and snow hasn't covered the ground yet, and you pick up a rock, and it's very, very heavy, and it looks very odd, and you think this could be a meteorite, and it's very uh, valuable. So you would take it to a lab or a university and have them test the object, the rock that you found, to see if it, in fact, is something special. So... When our faith is tested, in this first sense, the Lord is revealing what is true about our faith. He is showing it to be the case, whatever it is. It's kind of a a, a coming out party of what your faith is that He produces in you. So why would God do this? Because, to use the analogy further, there is a danger of fool's gold. What you think you have that is trust in the Lord through a process of testing shows what you thought to be genuine faith to be fool's gold. And and he just shows it to you. Look, it was false. It was fake. You didn't really have trust in me. So that's the first sense of testing, to show what is true about your faith. There's another sense of testing in the Bible, though. And that is to improve the quality of something. And I think this is the sense that we should take chapter 4, verse 12. It says, through the fiery trial... I don't think he's talking about persecution or, or martyrdom through fire, though some have taken it to mean that. Uh, there's a, a Karen Jobes, the commentator I'm, I'm uh, referring to occasionally in my study of 1 Peter, uh, compares this to a, a proverb from a Roman Stoic philosopher, uh, Seneca, who would have been writing around the same time. And he says, fire tests gold, affliction tests strong men. So in the same way that gold, when you find it in the earth or when you're trying to recycle it, you have to heat it up super, super hot and melt it completely into liquid form and to remove what is called the dross out of that metal so that it is pure now. 
So two types of testing. One, to show what the quality of something is, and then testing to improve the quality of something. The same idea of testing comes with, with sea trials, with, with ships that are trying to get ready for battle. They, they send them out, and they, they do a trial run of everything. So it exposes. It's kind of both happening at the same time. It exposes the things that are wrong, and it helps the crew get ready for deployment. So that's the sense that we should take this. I think Peter is meaning both simultaneously here. Trials and the grief of trials both proves the genuineness of our faith and causes or increases the genuineness of our faith. And this is not innovative or surprising if you've been a believer for some time or even remotely familiar with biblical teaching. But goodness gracious, how often we forget it. That the Lord uses trials and the grief to both test and show the quality of your faith and to improve the quality of your faith. To just embrace and hold on to that truth every day as you encounter trials and grief will pay dividends every single day. But we just, I don't know why, we just forget it. And when we encounter a trial, sometimes the smaller the trial it is, the more difficult it is to remember that the Lord is working in this to show the quality of my faith and produce the quality of my faith. And we just have a bad attitude about whatever it is He's ordained to bring into our lives. Someone moves your cheese or exhorts you or rubs you the wrong way or when your kids don't listen to you or when they wake up at 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. That these trials, that was oddly specific, these trials and these griefs are purposeful. Because God is showing us. He doesn't need to know the quality of our faith. He is showing us what the quality of our faith is. And then He is providing us opportunities to increase the quality of our faith. We need to be reminded of this often. Understand, believer, that, that, that image should come to your mind. Whenever you think about analogies for your life and your the analogies for the Christian life, you know, we, we've talked about elect exiles earlier in the passage. We've, we've talked about the fact that we are, in some sense, uh, God's sheep. And we like all of these analogies for, for how we are Christians. But I think sometimes we naturally revert to thinking of the Christian life as maybe in a waiting room or or a a terminal waiting for our trip out of here. Or maybe that we're just on a cruise and God's giving us these blessings until we reach our final destination. Like Whatever analogy or image comes to your mind to explain and to put your Christian life in categories, the biblical one is gold that is being heated up beyond its point of melting and dross being removed. That's the image, the fires of affliction. That exacting process of examination in a laboratory to see what the nature and quality of your faith is, and in that furnace, the smelting pot of affliction to increase the quality of your faith and remove impurities. And I'm glad, just in view of that, that In God's providential and sovereign will, it is He that is keeping me in this because if I understood all that He is planning to take me through to both show the quality of my faith and increase the quality of my faith, I would try to excuse myself from that. What you've signed up for, dear Christian, is something that is not, unless you have the Spirit, enjoyable at all. 
But He enables you both to rejoice greatly, leap for joy in view of the realities of what God has done and is doing and promises to do, and simultaneously to be necessarily grieved. I want you to also see the superiority of genuine faith. We've looked at the cause and the proof of genuine faith. Now let's look at the superiority of genuine faith. He says that faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So in this analogy of gold and the smelting pot, he says that, it, that image that comes to your mind when I use the idea of testing, your faith is more precious than even that. Now, the reason he says it's more precious is because gold is perishable. How is it that gold is perishable? If you were to select as a, as a token idea an imperishable investment-grade object in the world, gold would be the best candidate, just as, as like a representative thing of, of objects that don't lose their value. The value of gold can fluctuate, but it's always going to be needful, and there's always going to be a demand for it. And one of the reasons that it is so valuable and needful is that it doesn't tarnish. It doesn't rot. It doesn't become corrupt. So so what is he saying? That it it is perishable. I think this is why we need to look again at the end of verse 7. That the view that Peter has, the scope of his framework for understanding the purpose of trials and the value of genuine faith being better than that of gold is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we've already alluded to this passage earlier in our study of 1 Hebrews, but it is so helpful to give us an understanding of why he's using these flavors of words. From 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He uses a word in another place. Melt as they burn. To understand the contrast, faith is more valuable even than the most precious valuable element in the ancient world at least because that element is not going to last or survive the day of God's wrath. Faith is superior, more precious than gold or any earthly possession or any ideal version of life that you want to live because faith is not going to be dissolved. It's not going to be burned up by the fire at the end of the age. All that will be allowed to enter that holy place that He is preparing for us, the new heavens and the new earth, are hearts that trust Him. That's it. That is the only thing worthy to enter that place. The only thing that is sturdy enough to endure through the great and awesome day of the Lord is Jesus Himself and His Word and those who cling to Him and hold fast to His Word. That's it. As the psalmist says in Psalm 24, verse 3 through 6, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in His holy place? He who has a clean hands and pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God.
Genuine faith is superior than anything else that exists in this life. Does your life correspond to the value, the surpassing value of genuine faith? What are you striving to accomplish in your life? Is it an increase of faith? Or is it whatever else you chase? Peter, along with Paul and all the rest of the apostles and Jesus himself, would just say in response to that, if it's anything else other than an increase of faith, you're making a bad investment of your time and your resources and everything else. Because the only thing that is going to really last into the new age is faith. Your ability, your degree of trust and entrusting yourself over to the Messiah. That's it. You can do so many things, obviously. You can, you can do many things that make sense in, in pursuit of increasing your faith. I'm not saying you become a monk and just do nothing else but think about God. right? You're to obey Jesus in all the ways that He's given you to obey. But even in that obedience, it must be motivated out of faith. Because you can do the right thing, and if it's not motivated out of faith, it's sin, the Bible says. So we've seen the superiority of genuine faith. I, I want us to look at the results of genuine faith. So why is it so precious? Why is faith, even our faith, such a wonderful thing that God is is justified? It is so precious. Our faith, our trust in Jesus is so precious that it justifies God using grievous trials to prove and cause it. And this is because genuine faith will result in praise and glory and honor on the last day. This is exactly what he says. I'm just going along the lines of the text itself. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Each of those three words, praise and glory and honor, those could be sermons unto themselves. I'm not going to try to take the time now to define all them. But I think Peter is placing them all together to, to kind of build a, an image in your mind. And, and I think in some ways we can know intuitively what a phrase like praise and glory and honor would mean. It means something like this. May, that, that your faith may result in, in esteem and fame and respect. That's, that's uh, maybe a, another way of thinking about it, a paraphrase. Now it's somewhat ambiguous in the text who the glory and honor and praise is coming from, and who it's going to. It just says it it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. So it's not given to us, at least in this text, as to who it's coming from and who the praise and glory and honor is going to. Is it that our genuine faith will result in praise and glory and honor for God? Or is it that our genuine faith will result in praise and glory and honor for us from God? Both are true and are supported elsewhere in Scripture, but the emphasis here, I think, is pretty obvious. The emphasis is that the praise and glory and honor is for us, those who have trusted in the Lord. And that makes some people uncomfortable, that what is waiting for you is praise and glory and honor. What what sets the person of God, the man of God, aside in John chapter 1 is that his praise is not from man, but from God. 
Understand the context here. These people have trusted in God. They have trusted in Jesus. And because of it, they've received opposition and oppression. And rejection from the world. The God who is there will receive glory no matter what. No matter how this thing ends, no matter how it is all wound up, the God who is there will receive glory by necessity. The real question, begged by the situation of the hearers in their trials and and begged by the situation that your life is in, all the trials and the grief that you're going through, is did the followers of Jesus make the right choice? Was following Jesus, even considering all the cost and all the suffering, was it worth it? That's the question. And understand, this is what I think Peter is saying here. He's not just saying uh, a general vague sense of your faith will result in glory for God in the end. Obviously, that's going to happen. I think that's a lazy understanding of this text. The real nugget here for you is this, that God will glorify Himself to the utmost by praising, glorifying, and honoring those who trusted in His Son. That's a massively packed theological sentence. But God is going to glorify Himself the way He has chosen to magnify the glory of His fame more than in any other way is by praising, honoring, and glorying you. The only one who will be worshipped in the end will be the one on the throne and on the Lamb. But the surprising thing is this. The astounding thing is this, that you and I, crowned with glory and favor, will be able to draw near to Him and ascend the hill of the Almighty. This is what Jesus says in Revelation 3, verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. That you, through faith and trust in Jesus, would be counted worthy to be an integral, permanent fixture in the temple of God. And we will serve together in a less metaphorical sense as priests forever. In the same way that the priests of Levi were honored and given a greater blessing, not in the land, but to have the Lord as their portion, you, believer in Jesus, will be given the portion of being the holy priest in the order of our older brother Jesus forever. That is the honor, the praise, the glory, ready and waiting for you at the revelation of Jesus. At the day of judgment, it is not as if we will barely skate into heaven under the disapproving frown of God. This is how Paul says it in 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. There's so, so much from Paul on this idea of reward. He fully expects to be rewarded by Christ Himself when He arrives. One more thing to think about in connection with this idea of the Lord Himself lavishing praise and glory and honor upon His people at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Back to Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, 
that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Understand, this cry of command, this indomitable and irresistible shout from the throne for the very gates of heaven to open and allow the Son of Man to enter in will be the same voice of command to allow you to enter in. Does that sound too scandalous to say? You don't ride anyone's coattails coming into heaven. It will be on the basis of your trust in the Lord Jesus that He welcomes you in. So you could almost insert your name into that text. Be lifted up, O gates. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that he or she may come in. Through faith, your place of honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ is beyond the highest honor of the archangels. You understand that? No one else gets to sit on the throne with Jesus. We also need to see the end of genuine faith. He says, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I just love Peter for so many reasons. One of the reasons I love the contours of his thought is that he has what some have called a single event eschatology. That Jesus shows up and that's it. Right? There, there's obviously a lot of things that are going to happen between now and then and after then, but in his mind, the great and awesome day of the Lord is this single event and everything else just reduces in significance because of the significance of that day when Christ comes to stand on the earth. How should we take this idea of the great and awesome day of the Lord, the last day, in connection to faith and trials? The question is this, when exactly does faith pay off? When does this whole necessary process of trials producing grief and this enduring for the increase of the quality and genuine faith actually make sense? At the end when Jesus Christ is revealed. Understand this, brothers and sisters. If your life makes sense, even if Jesus isn't coming back, you're doing it wrong. If the way that you deal with suffering and sorrow and grief makes sense, even if Jesus isn't coming back, you're doing it wrong. Because the payoff... The day when it will all make sense. The day, with another helpful word, when God vindicates those who have trusted in Jesus is the last day. It will not look like it now. Because there is just so much that is going to happen and everything is going to be rewritten and everything that is sad will become untrue. That's when He vindicates you. That's the end of genuine faith. It's not the end in the sense of the purpose of genuine faith, but it is also the end in the real sense of that it's over. Faith gives way to sight. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. 
Even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In this, in all of this, even in the trials, even His putting us to grief through trials, we can rejoice greatly knowing that the tested genuineness of our faith will result in praise and glory and honor when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what a great inheritance You have given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Help us rest in Your fatherly purposes even in our trials, even in the grief that is so grievous. Lord, make these things so for the glory of Your name, the praise of Your Son Jesus, and the good of Your people now and always. Amen.